So here's the deal. My name's Ben, and I'm literally a child of the 80s. My parents were really cool and let me watch all sorts of movies when I was a little kid, even violent grown-up ones, which I probably really shouldn't have. I've been a movie geek ever since, and now that I'm a responsible grown-up with a child of my own, I'm starting to make a list of all the classic movies I want them to watch and enjoy. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Big Trouble in Little China, you know, the usual. But I'm wondering, were the 80s really as good as everyone seems to believe? Were all those films I watched as a young, innocent, highly susceptible kid really as good as I remember? And all these remakes that seem to be coming out every goddamn week, are they really that much of an improvement? Are they even necessary in the first place? So I've got a plan. I'm going to go back and watch all those films that were released throughout my childhood, including those classics that I've never seen and really should have, and find out if after 30 odd years they still hold up. I'll also try and find out what happened to those involved in making them. Have they become a success, or have they just disappeared into obscurity? Hell, I'll even dig up some old 80s music to have them listened to. So, please join me as I attempt to watch... Every 80s movie ever made. Welcome to episode 2 of Every 80s Movie Ever Made, or EMEM, as all the cool kids aren't saying right now. This is my attempt to watch nearly 1,080s movies, collated from the Wikipedia page for 1980s in film, and the 80s movie website www.fast-rewind.com. If you've got any recommendations for more obscure 80s films that don't appear on those two pages, you can email me on emem at hotmail.co.uk, that's E-E-M-E-M. Or get hold of me on Twitter using at every80smovie, that's every80smovie, or simply hashtag greatest podcast ever. Yeah, I wish. Thanks for coming back, by the way, after the shoddy mess that was episode one. Oh, hey look, I've got a new microphone and everything. Or oh, I'm dead professional me. Alright then, on with the show! The film... Youngblood, released in 1986, not to be confused with the identically named gang movie made in 1978. With a budget of approximately $8 million, Youngblood grossed $4.2 million on its opening weekend towards a total US box office of $15.5 million. The director. Peter Markle, born in 1952. He's an extensive catalogue of work, predominantly in television. His breakthrough feature film movie was Hot Dog the Movie in 1984, one of those crappy sex comedies that seemed to be everywhere at the time. He followed Youngblood with the highly regarded Bat 21, starring Gene Hackman in 1988, before moving into television. His only other notable motion picture work was Wagons East, no more for it being the last role of John Candy than the quality of the film itself. Markle has directed episodes of TV shows such as The X-Files, ER, NYPD Blue, Without a Trace, and the 48 different versions of CSI. His most notable work, however, is probably the TV movie Flight 93, based on events during 9-11. However, despite its very favourable reviews, it was pretty much usurped by United 93, directed by Paul Greengrass of the Bourne Supremacy and Ultimatum fame. It's safe to say that while Peter Markle has been a busy old chap, his actual body of work is somewhat average. Interestingly, Youngblood was written by Markle, who had a few years' experience as a semi-professional hockey player as a teenager. The stars. Rob Lowe born in 1964, who plays Dean Youngblood. Best known for being part of the Brat Pack of actors after roles in 1985's St Elmo's Fire, About Last Night in 1986, and Masquerade in 1988. He then became embroiled in a highly publicised scandal following a sexually explicit videotape involving a minor, 
which resulted him in getting community service. However, he became good friends with Mike Myers while filming Wayne's World in 1992, and credits Myers with revitalising his career following a role as young number two in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. He tended to find small roles generally as a nasty piece of work, although he did play the deaf and dumb Nick Andros in the admirable TV version of Stephen King's book The Stand, a role somewhat close to his heart, as low as deaf in his right ear. He shot back into the limelight following his role as Sam Seaborn in the brilliant West Wing, but left after a few seasons due to disputes over salary and screen time. He's never really hit that level since, despite a number of other TV roles. Patrick Swayze was born in 1954 and died in 2009, who plays Derek Sutton. His mother, Patsy, was a choreographer and Patrick was a student at a dance school. Fine training for his breakthrough lead role in Dirty Dancing in 1987. One of his first jobs was playing Prince Charming in Disneyland Parades. And one of the Cinderella's he danced with was a wannabe actress named Michelle Pfeiffer. Following Dirty Dancing, Swayze had a run of hit movies in the late 80s, early 90s. Roadhouse, Ghost, Point Break. His career suffered in the mid-90s as he struggled with alcoholism, but then returned to the public eye following a stunning role in 2001's Donnie Darko. He enjoyed a run on Broadway as the lead in Chicago, and his focus in the public eye skyrocketed after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in January 2008. He continued to work on the TV series The Beast, despite his struggle, but tragically died the following year. By the way, Swayze was 34 when he made this. 34. Cynthia Gibb, born in 1963, plays Jessie Chadwick, Youngblood's on-off flame. Similar to Swayze, she was born into a dancing family. Her mother was a ballet teacher, but she also had the looks to propel her onto the front cover of Vogue by the age of 15. Woody Allen spotted her. I'm not saying anything else. And cast her in a small role in 1980's Stardust Memories, and she quickly landed a recurring role in the TV series Search for Tomorrow. I've never heard of it, but maybe you have. I have heard of Fame, however, which she featured in for three seasons from 1983 to 1987, during which she also appeared in Youngblood and Oliver Stone's 1986 movie Salvador. She appeared in Short Circuit 2 in 1988 and played the title character in The Karen Carpenter Story the following year, before tailing off into TV movie obscurity, and she now lives as a voice coach in LA. You may not recognise Ed Lauter's name, but you will definitely know his face. Born in 1938, he broke into TV acting in 1971 and has been working solidly ever since. A solid character actor who tends to play authority figures, his back catalogue is huge. Let me throw some titles past you. The Mean Machine, which he was also in the remake, The Longest Yard, Cujo, Raw Deal, The Rocketeer, Wagons East, reunited with Peter Markle, Sea Biscuit, The Number 23, and to top it all off, Starship Troopers 2. He's also appeared in pretty much every awesome TV show ever made in the US. Ironside, Kojak, BJ and the Bear, Manimal, The A-Team, Miami Vice, ER, NYPD Blue, and to top it all off, Walker, Texas Ranger. He appeared in the Oscar-winning hit The Artist, and most recently featured in the US version of the UK comedy drama series Shameless. George J. Finn, who plays the brutish Racky, has two films listed on IMDb, this and The Dozens, made in 1981. There's no other details, no bio, and apparently nothing else on the entire internet about him. The man has just up and disappeared. Jim Youngs, who plays Dean's older brother Kelly, was born in 1956 to a family full of actors. He was a nightclub manager, dance instructor and golf pro before tagging along with his older sister to an audition for Philip Kaufman's The Wanderers in 1979, purely for a lark, and ended up with the lead role. A few TV roles and part in Footloose in 1984 preceded Youngblood before his first major lead role in 1987's Hot Shot, where he played an American soccer player who seeks out the one and only Pele. It unsurprisingly flopped, and while he continued roles in minor films and TV series for a while, the mid to late 90s saw him disappear off the scene, 
although he is due to reappear from retirement in 2013 with the sex comedy Daddy's Girls. There's also a minor role for one cool breeze over the mountain. Sorry, Keanu Reeves. His part is too small to really justify me giving him a full backstory, but let's just say he plays a French-Canadian goalkeeper who sounds like he's never been to Canada or France. The writer. The director, Peter Markle. Although the story is also co-credited with a John Whitman, whose only other credit is acting in the 2004 TV series Fireflies, not Joss Whedon's Firefly, I must add. The plot. A 17-year-old farmhand from rural New York State, Dean Youngblood, played by Rob Lowe, has dreams of playing in the NHL. Dean voices these dreams to his father, played by Eric Nestorenko, but he's discouraged from this. But it's not until his brother, Kelly, played by Jim Youngs, convinces their father to let him try that he's granted the chance to travel to Canada to trial for the Hamilton Mustangs. At the tryouts, Youngblood demonstrates the abilities which garnered him 92 goals in the New York League, but also displays a lack of physical toughness that's so prized in Canadian junior hockey. This perceived weakness is pounced upon by a brutish player, Carl Racky, played by George J. Finn, who's also trying out for the team and engages Youngblood in a fight. Youngblood quickly learns that flashiness and pure athletic ability will not be enough to be successful in this league. However, despite being one punch by Racky, coach Chadwick, played by Ed Lauter, opts to select Youngblood for a spot on the team, who shortly after has his first run-in with the coach's daughter, Jessie, Cynthia Gibb, and an early attraction is felt, which is probably helped by Youngblood being stood in front of her in only a strap. He ingratiates himself to the other players through a hazing ritual in which members of the Mustangs pin Youngblood down and Captain Derek Sutton, played by Patrick Swayze, shaves his testicles with a straight razor. And their further bonds with the team through underage drinking at a local bar and later having two of his teammates, including the goalie Heaver, played by Keanu Reeves, watch as he's seduced by his cougar of a landlady. After Sutton's brutally injured by Racky, who's now with the rival Thunder Bay Bombers, Youngblood returns home to the farm out of fear, sadness and disgust at himself for not standing up. After a pep talk by his older brother about the nature of never quitting and always standing up for yourself, Youngblood is inspired to learn how to fight and survive on the ice and adapt the killer instinct that's been stopping him from being successful. Youngblood returns to the team a new man, ready to confront Racky in the final game of the Memorial Cup playoffs between his team and the Bombers. The game ends with a dramatic game-winning penalty shot goal by Youngblood with three seconds left. Yet it's far from over, as Youngblood demands to coach Chadwick to be left in the game as time expires to confront Racky. Let's go, pretty boy, says Youngblood, as he and Racky engage in a violent fight to the death. Uh, no, fight to the finish, with teammates and crowd, including Youngblood's brother and father and girlfriend Jesse, cheering him on. The fight starts with both Youngblood and Racky using their sticks as swords, until Youngblood knocks Racky's stick out of his hands. Youngblood and Racky then fight barehanded. Youngblood eventually emerges victorious, landing several blows to the face and body of his nemesis, Racky, and is carried off the ice on the shoulders of his teammates in celebration. And everything is amazing. Movie trivia. Whew, how about that, eh? Tell you what, let's calm down with some things you may not know about the movie Youngblood. Number one. Keanu Reeves was an MVP and nicknamed The Wall for his goaltending abilities in a Toronto college, so at least one part of his performance was realistic. Patrick Swayze had previous training as a figure skater, but Rob Lowe had to be taught how to skate before filming began. Number two, Eric Nestorenko, who plays Youngblood's father, was a former professional hockey player who spent most of his career playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. Number three, Peter Zazel and Steve Thomas, who play fellow Mustangs, were actual NHL professionals at the time of filming. They played for the Philadelphia Flyers and Toronto Maple Leafs, respectively. Number four, Peter Markle filmed the ice skating scenes while on ice skates himself. 
I've done this before, filming scenes on a golf course while holding a club in my hands, and it was the only way I could get those fucking actors to do any work. Finally, number five, Jessica Steen, a Toronto-born actress, spent two weeks shooting scenes as Derek Sutton's girlfriend, and then they were all cut from the final film. She's got an extensive TV portfolio, however, so it didn't kill her career, and she did turn up in 2002's Slapshot 2, Breaking the Ice, with Stephen Baldwin and Gary Busey. So, everything turned out alright for her in the end. Review notes. So, here are some thoughts I jotted down while I was watching the movie. Number one was jotted down before I watched the movie. Uh, the video cover that's shown on IMDb has got the three main characters on it, but it looks like they're on Mount Rushmore drawn in an Etch-A-Sketch. Um, I can remember vaguely picking this up at my local video store, and on the front cover there was a bare-chested Rob Lowe on it looking dead hard and impressive. Um, I seem to recall my mum was really keen on watching it as well, but um, I can't think why. Oh, God, mum. That's terrible. Number two. Sorry, but in what farm do you build an ice rink stadium in a barn? It's explained later on by Rob Lowe that uh, their barn used to freeze in the winter and him and his brother would go skating. But you can clearly see stadium seating in every shot that they film in there, even though supposedly lit by a tractor. And where's all this bloody smoke coming from as well? Very, very bizarre. Number three. Does Jim Young's actually have a glass eye in real life as his character's supposed to? Not according to his bio, but it's quite impressive. It actually does look like he does. Although, in some shots, I couldn't actually tell which one was the real eye because uh, he barely moved his eyes. Number four, there's a really bad drinking scene when Youngblood's sitting around with his new teammates. There's some proper forced laughter. The timing of some of the jokes is, is really piss poor. And I couldn't tell uh, at one point whether the supposed funny stuff was genuine or whether the characters themselves were pretending to have fun. Number five, the whole thing is very, very obvious. It's cliche upon cliche upon trope upon trope. It gets quite ridiculous. Number six, there's some awkward slapstick sequences in there. Rob Lowe in his jock strap. Um, there's a weird Canadian guy that skates into a table full of food and gets cake all over his face. It just sometimes feels like it was supposed to be a comedy rather than a drama, and they kept shooting different movies at different times. Number seven, Jessie is your absolute classic 80s girlfriend. She's a bit sassy, she's got big long hair, she's got big doe eyes, she wears boys clothes. In fact, she looks quite a bit like Rob Lowe. Number eight, sex in front of a fire, all-time classic. Number nine, why do people in hospital make a joke and then wince when they laugh? Just don't do it. And why does everybody else have to start the scene with, how are you feeling? I'm lying on a hospital bed wrapped in bandages. How the fuck do you think I'm feeling? Number ten. Do you want to beef yourself up and learn how to face up to life? And go work on a farm, pussy boy. And just how long is it between these matches? Because it seems like Dean spends about a month training up on the farm. And I feel like I'm watching fucking Rocky IV. Number 11. You score with three seconds left in the game? Well, in movie land, there's time for at least another two goals in that. And finally, number 12. This is the most 80 sports movies of all 80 sports movies. The verdict. It's full of every single cliche in the playbook. It's cheesy, has some half-decent and some fucking terrible acting. It's got a pretty 80s girl, a pretty 80s boy, a synth-heavy soundtrack. It's got some really odd slapstick comedy moments. It's got sex by a fireplace, and it's got a last-second winning goal. It's the ultimate 80s sports movie. But I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. I mean, it ticks every single box when making a list of things you think that define the very term 80s sports movie. It's the dictionary definition of generic and yet I'm an absolute sucker for sports movies, and I really enjoyed it. The remake. 
no remake and no sequel. But I did have a sharp intake of breath when I saw an online report that Brett fucking Ratner was to direct Youngblood. But it turns out that this is a live action version of a comic book. And let's face it, pretty much every sports movie ever made follows the same structure. Lead with flawed talent must overcome a personal weakness to defeat the nasty competitor who nearly always cheats to win. They get the trophy and the girl and credits roll. Would a remake work? Well, it probably would for fans of sports movies like me, but I don't think Youngblood has enough of a cult following to justify using the title name to draw people in. However, there would have been potential for a sequel in the few years after its first release. Think about it. Youngblood gets first draft, but who was waxing lyrical about how much he needed to get first draft? Sutton. The two friends become enemies as Sutton is bitter at Youngblood stealing his dream, but then something happens to bring them back together. They reunite when they have to face off against Russians in the Olympics! Fucking awesome! And Dolph Lundgren's the goaltender! Even more awesome! Sound clips. Right, I've just gone and copyrighted that idea, so uh, let's have a listen to some sound clips that I managed to rip from the movie. First one, don't take any shit. I'm wondering how this line went down with the Canadians. Don't take any shit from them Canucks. To them, you're just another wetback crossing the border to play their game. They'll never catch me. Oh, they'll catch you. Yeah, they'll catch you, because they're all riding a boot on their horses. Number two, the lowdown on Racky. Carl Racky, 6 feet, 198 pounds. Played Tier 2 in the Western League last year. 15 goals, 22 assists, and 378 minutes and penalties. Sounds like a classy guy, doesn't he? Number three, fucking an animal. Keanu Reeves only has about four lines in this film, and they all sound like this. Man, Racky's brutal even for this league. Where that man is fucking an animal. <laughs> you know what? I could be doing cool breeze over the mountains of disservice here. He might actually supposed to be playing a mentally disabled person. Number four, a rather bizarre change in music to signify the start of a drinking session. Game! Getting out of this hick town. Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. <laughs> Although I do like that quote from Swayze. 34 he was then. 34. The fresh-faced bastard. Number 5. Angry Coachy. Part of the sports movie playbook checklist. <laughs> All right, huh? Yeah. Hey, you better take a break, huh? Some uh, milk and cookies or something? Uh, how about a little nap? Can I ask you a question? How'd you get so horseshit in one day? Maybe I made a mistake about you. What do you think? I don't think so. You don't think so? Well, you better know so, because this isn't some goddamn recreational hockey league. And if you want to be here tomorrow, you better show me more than what you're showing me right now. Now get out there. Go! <laughs> Number six, I've heard of New York. For a split second, the lead character comes across as a total dumbass. I'm sorry. I probably got you into trouble. I should have gone home with him. Oh, no. It's just been kind of hard to meet people I can talk to up here. Where's down there? City. Buffalo? 
New York. Oh, yeah. I've heard of it. The pair of them do snigger at each other, so we do know it's a joke, but for just a second, I'd said to myself, seriously? Number seven, the problem with sports in the 80s. How can you be thinking about the game when you're styling on your head ten minutes before it's going to start? Sometimes I wonder if players today have it in here, you know? You know what Gordy Howe's bonus was when he signed? Jacket. A team jacket. How's the agent? Nowadays, everybody wants a 20-year uh, no-cut contract and a second home in uh, Bora Bora. Where's that? Well, you guys looked at practice this week. You'll be lucky if you're drafted by the Tallahassee Warthogs. Also, the problem with sports in the 90s and the noughties and the 10s and on and on and on. Number eight. Could there be a less romantic way of asking a girl out? Hey, it's a goal. Really? I don't follow hockey. Or hockey players. You know, your dad benched me. Derek says it's because I'm seeing you. Maybe he's right. Well, if I'm getting benched for something I didn't do, I figure I might as well do it. Do what? Take you out. And what makes you think I'll go out with you? Because your old man doesn't want you to. Sounds like a pretty good reason. Wow, she sounds just as enthusiastic as he does. Number nine, the goofy Canuck. One of the sections of the film where the tone changes really quite markedly to silly slapstick. Gee, you're real coordinated. I know. I'm going to play for New York someday. I think you ought to learn how to skate first. You two all right? Oh, yeah, we're just fine. It's his first time. You better stay alongside of the porch. You're going to get run over. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Number 10, a line that actually belongs in a carry-on movie. It's a nice room. Yes, yeah, not bad. Bed's a little creaky. Oh, tell me about it. I use it every night. To sleep on. Of course. <laughs> oh, that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Number 11, Swayze's speech. This is one of those bits of acting that has you going, yeah, this guy is going places. I don't give a shit where I play as long as I go number one in the draft and I sign the biggest contract I can. I've been busting my ass in this league for four years and I'm going to get what's coming to me. I figure if I'm lucky, I can make enough money to last me for a while. I mean, I'm... I'm not going to be a lawyer or a doctor. That's for sure. Well, I didn't even get to finish high school. But I can play the game, and so can you. 
But it's more than that. It's more than just skating fast and shooting bullets. You got to understand, they got us by the balls, Diener. I mean, we all want to play so bad. I mean, that's all you want to do when you're growing up. Then you realize that it's more than just a game. You got to play it according to their rules. Do you still like playing? Fucking love it. <laughs> Such a shame what happened to him, you know. Number 12. Probably the most annoying question you could possibly ask somebody who's just woken up on a hospital bed. But it's followed by a pretty decent line. How are you feeling? As he's giggling, he winces because it really hurts. Always happens, every single fucking time. Number 13. The standard argument between the lead character and his girlfriend, but by Christ, this is some piss-poor acting. I should have done something. Dean, there's nothing you could have done. Yeah, I could have hit Racky before he hit Derek. You mean maim Racky? Why not? He deserved it, didn't he? Damn it! You're all alike! It means that you're no better than Racky. If I hit Racky, Derek wouldn't be in the hospital now. So maybe it's Racky in the hospital. Or maybe it's you, Dean. Maybe it's you covered with bandages and tubes sticking out of you. Maybe it should be. God, what are you saying? I watched that game and I saw Derek lying there on the ice. And I watched them take him out in the ambulance, and all I could think about is, what if it had been you? What if it was you? Why don't you quit? Why don't you just I quit? I did. I walked off the team today. For the first time in my life, I didn't want to play. It's only a game. It's all I ever wanted to do. I do really like the soundtrack over the back of that argument though uh, it's definitely my type of music and it all ends in with a cuddle so everything's all right finally number 14 one of the weirdest put downs i have heard in a long while just hit it pillow hands yeah you with your big floppy white square hands filled with feathers hit the damn thing duvet head yeah and on that rather bizarre note let's move on to something else the soundtrack. Scored predominantly by William Orbit, who was born in 1956 and is better known for his production work with artists such as Madonna, U2, Seal and No Doubt. 
He's seen as a pioneer of electronic music in the late 80s, early 90s through his Strange Cargo series of albums, but hit the mainstream in 1999 when a Ferry Corsten remix of his electronic version of Adagio for Strings, best known for the tune, was a UK number one hit. The album it was taken from, Pieces in a Modern Style, was also a hit in the album charts, reaching number two. It is, in my humble opinion, a pretty disappointing piece of work. Orbit also did the soundtrack for the previously mentioned Hot Shot in 1987 starring Jim Youngs, but his work tends to feature on soundtracks as individual releases rather than a fully composed score. Orbit's work on Youngblood is pretty decent. There's a continual melodic theme throughout the film, changing in tempo to suit various moods, but still remaining recognisable. It's memorable enough, but there are a couple of instances of really cheesy 80s synth, particularly when Jesse and Dean meet outside the cinema. Other artists featured on the soundtrack include Mr. Mister, Starship and Autograph, all the best names I'm sure they'll agree. So that's it, Youngblood is done and dusted. So. Let me boot up my 80s computer and see what it throws my way for the next episode. Baby Boom, released in 1987, starring Diane Keaton. It's been a while since I've seen this one, and I'm not the greatest fan of Diane Keaton at the best of times, so it's going to be interesting to try and remain objective. Remember, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can get hold of me at emem at hotmail.co.uk or via Twitter on at every80smovie80s. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. content oh hello i thought you'd gone well then what little surprise do i have for you here that you didn't realize was going to turn up even though there's still a few minutes left on the track length well i think it's only fair to give you a bit of willy Morbit, as i really do enjoy his early stuff this is titled theme dream it's the last track from the first strange cargo album which also appeared on the young blood soundtrack it's a slower version of the main title theme and i really do much prefer it so enjoy <laughs>